0: That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind.
1: And welcome to a very special edition of the Syzygy Podcast. This time we're talking about something which is a bit topical right now. It's 50 years since a very big thing happened. Sitting opposite me at the microphone, as ever, Emily Brunsden. What what
2: happened 50 years ago? Well, we landed on the moon.
1: We, I mean, I wasn't there. No,
2: no. neither was I. But we,
1: we collectively, as a species, landed and set foot on the moon for the first time. 50 years ago. I'm, I'm guessing you've probably heard of that by now. It's all over the news. NASA and every other space program on the planet. Is getting very, very excited about this anniversary. And it is a big deal because this was I don't know. It's hard to put your finger on a more significant moment in science and technology, in, in history, that, that changed our view of ourselves in the in the cosmos. Can you think
2: of anything? Very you, I think, yeah, this is definitely up there. And this is definitely up there uh, because it was a huge coming together of people and science and technology to make endeavours not just because we can, but because we're curious and we think it's important. So I think a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is kind of that that human in- impact of what this yeah. was all about.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's going to be plenty of podcasts and documentaries and, and TV specials and, you know, probably – muppets episodes and all sorts of things about landing on the moon around the moment but the tack that we thought we'd take on it is okay so from a from a sort of scientific astronomical you know from 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 our typical syzygy angle what's the importance of the moon landing so that's where we're going to go today the only other thing that i can think of that's that's sort of even vaguely on the same scale is sort of the human genome project again of of modern times but this this thing which took so long and so many people and is now almost trivial. You know, it took years to to sequence the first human genome. Um, What is it? Coming up to two decades ago that that started. It took years and it took billions. And it's now something which you can pretty much order away for overnight. You know, it's now become not quite trivial, but almost. Similarly, I mean, landing on the moon's not trivial. But now we're at a point where, loads of different organizations both government and private are gearing up to go back to the moon whereas the first time we did it it was really hard this was something that was right at the edge of i don't know whether we can do this or not so should we kind of start there with what happened how did we as a, as a population as a, as a as a society as a species how did we land on the moon
2: it's such, there's so many fascinating stories as mm. part of our moon landing history, and there's absolutely no way that we can talk about all of them. I mean, everything from the very initial um, Kennedy speech, which is we're going to be there in a decade.
0: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
2: To the the beavering away that hundreds and thousands and thousands of people did across America, across the globe, to make it happen. You know the tensions that arose because of the space race. The you know the international politics. It's yeah, just
1: hugely political, but something that led to, as you say, such a such an amazing collaboration across so many so many groups. Um, not entirely international at that point. That kind of came a bit later because it was very political and it was us versus them, we've got to get there. I I do wonder whether during Kennedy's famous speech, you know, we we choose to go to the moon. There would have been a lot of people going, Yeah and there would have been a lot of people going, Really? How are we gonna do that? You know, the the people actually involved it must have been a strange mixture of real excitement and Oh God! How are we going to pull this off? You know, but what an amazing decade it yeah. was after that.
2: Amazing, yeah. And so, if we were to really put this in context of the time and the place that it sat in history, I suspect we'd be sitting here talking for ten, fifteen, twenty hours. Mm. But um, if we sort of put that aside and maybe just we, we review very much the quick facts, if you like, of what the happened during the actual event, then we can maybe think about those impacts that have happened over the last 50 years and I think take a step back and appreciate what it has done and what has changed our lives today.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I just want to throw in a stat that I heard the other day though, which I'd never thought about before. But when Kennedy got up to make his speech, I have heard, and if anyone out there who is an utter space nut cares to contradict this, fine, write in, we'd love to hear from you. But I've heard that when Kennedy made his speech... Americans had a total of 16 minutes of space experience at that point. You know, they had two missions, I think, at that point, which had sent something up into space for eight minutes and back down it came. And two of them. Total of 16 minutes in space. And not not
2: people. Yeah, not Not, people. Nothing living. Not people.
1: No, just stuff. But based on 16 minutes in space, 16 successful minutes in space, yeah. Yeah. Let's go and land on the moon. Let's put a human being on the moon. That takes, you know, that's chutzpah right there. Anyway, so let's get back to that. Landing on the moon. What happened?
2: Right. So we have three astronauts who must be three of the bravest human beings, I think, that we've ever encountered on our planet. Because it's so easy to forget just how dangerous and uncertain and nervous these people must have been. I I
1: mean, before that, this was Apollo 11. And so there were 10 Apollo missions before that, all of which were gearing up to this point, getting stuff actually into space at all with these rockets and then getting towards the moon, going around the moon and coming back home again, having something land down on them. Was there a lander, but an unmanned lander first? I can't, I find it hard to believe that they would have sent humans down without testing the land, but maybe, I don't know. I don't know. But everything leading up to that point, but they were the first ones to actually go, yep, we are going to come down and land and then open the door and get out. And that's terrifying. I mean, it must have been just that first moment. must have been just freaky.
2: Yeah. Utterly freaky. It's incredible. And I think it's telling. And so these three people, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins.
1: Michael Collins is the one that you never hear about because yeah. he was the one left circling the moon in orbit waiting to pick them back up again. He was the one in the getaway car. Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
2: Uh, so these 3 it's kind of telling in some ways that they never flew again as astronauts after mm. this mission. Mm. Because, I mean, how could you top such no. an incredible experience to be the first people to go to the moon and land? Um, it's, it's really amazing. So, okay, so a quick timeline of what happened. So 16th of July, 1969, the um, Apollo 11 rocket was launched. So it contained three different components. You had a command module, which is where the astronauts kind of sat. You had the supply module, which had the um, kind of stuff that they needed, um, and the fuel rockets were kind of on the back of that. And, of course, the lunar module. So this is the bit that actually went down and landed on the surface of the moon. So they all went up on the 16th. Uh, The 20th, they landed on the surface. So it takes a few days to get to the moon. It, um, they landed at 2017, and this is universal time, so it's kind of pretty much the same thing as um, what you might know as Greenwich Mean Time, so coordinated time. Um, eight o'clock in the evening basically landed, and they were supposed to have a rest, to have a sleep. <laughs> but I think everyone... I
1: don't, I don't imagine there was a lot of sleep going on. Way <laughs> too
2: buzzed. I mean, they had a, you know, not um too difficult a little few little hiccups during the landing nothing that they had to take manually land the the lunar module in the end um but yeah it was it was fine but uh, you know i guess the adrenaline must just have been through the roof oh, by yeah.
1: this the point. entire way yeah, just just off the charts i mean have you there i think there's a um there's a documentary of of amazingly restored footage of Apollo 11, which is which is going to be doing the rounds, which I don't think has come out yet, so I'm looking forward to seeing that. But a really nice bit of insight into what it's like inside the the Apollo capsules as, as it's going is actually from Apollo 13, um, which, yes, okay, dramatised and, and Hollywood style. But I don't know about you, I thought that film gave a really good sense of what it's like to be in this claustrophobic environment particularly when things go wrong which they do in the Apollo 13 mission and when you think about what they actually had to do like okay we fire a rocket and it sends something to the moon and then it brings it back but they've got to get an enormous rocket into space and then they have to separate part of that rocket away turn it around come back plug into the bit that's going to land on the moon and then separate that off and then blast another rocket and head off towards the moon. And then that bit's got to separate again and go down and land on the moon. And then it's got to blast another rocket and take off from the moon and come up and meet up with the bit that's been orbiting around with Michael Collins in it. And then that's got to fire another rocket to head it back to Earth and separate and then land down on Earth again. Like, that's an enormous (laughs) amount of stuff that's got to go right.
2: Amazing complexity, yeah. And And if you get it a
1: bit wrong, you're going in the wrong direction forever. You know, it's just, it's just amazing.
2: I mean, in in an era where you didn't have computational power, right? No. These many, if not most of these sums were done by hand.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You see, (laughs) again, in that, in that, uh, in that film or in the documentaries, you see these, you see these astronauts just scribbling away on, on, you know, pencil on paper or pen on paper. And you think, did they really figure out entry angles like that? Yeah, they did. (laughs) absolutely amazing
2: yeah brilliant so of course they couldn't sleep so no. they decided well we might as well just crack on and get out there on the moon and this i mean the consequences of that were interesting because it ended up being that um when they did the first moonwalk it was actually kind of middle of the day for um new zealand australia and sort of that part of the world which is Kind of a little bit uh, different to what you might have expected. You thought maybe they would have waited for the live coverage. I'm not sure what time it must have been in the US, but it must have been sort of a little bit out of hours. Probably
1: not prime time. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. So. Well, maybe that was the reason why they sort of factored in the sleep. It's like, hang on, guys, you got to wait, wait for the right hour so that we can, you know, get you on at the the six o'clock watershed. So, <laughs> you know, but there's no, we need, we're going to get out there, and the Kiwis and the Aussies can uh, can get the. The full look at this one.
2: So the timing change uh, meant that they sort of had to rejig how they were working with the um, moon landing footage as well. And uh, there's a beautiful movie about this. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, has a very uh, nice New Zealand actor uh, oh, starring in it. Yeah, you're talking about the dish. I'm talking about the dish. Yes, yeah. yes,
1: with Sam Neill, the wonderful Sam Neill.
2: It's, and you know they take a bit of artistic license with the whole film, but it's it's prepositioned around the the you know these uh, scientists who are normally working this radio telescope, and kind of the bizarre things that happen to them when the, the space age kind of descends in rural Australia. Yeah, or, yeah this is the um them.
1: this is the big dish radio telescope at Parks in in uh, in sort of. Outback New South Wales, which is a wonderful place. And this big, uh, you know, classic style uh, curved dish. At one point you see them playing cricket on the surface of the dish. They've sort of leveled it out and they're playing cricket on it. Um, but it's a lovely, lovely film. And yes, they do take a little bit of artistic license with it. I, I remember going to a, to a screening of it where the director was there and, uh, and it was at a science and science fiction conference And they had this screening. And so the audience was filled with absolute space nuts. And at the end of the film, when the director got up to answer questions, after the first three questions, which were about historical inaccuracies inaccuracies in the film, he just turned around and said, look, look, it's fiction, right? We based it on real events, but we're telling a story here. So we know we got some of the facts wrong. Are there any questions that don't involve historical inaccuracies and every hand in the room just went down. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> right. I think we're done here. Thanks very much. But yeah, lovely film. If you haven't seen it, the dish yeah. definitely worth checking out. And it
2: out. definitely conveys the the sentiment I think of the time and the, the impact that this has, this event had globally. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Just crazy. So yeah, so this, um, so the moonwalk itself started at two two fifty six UT. So two, nearly three o'clock in the morning would have been for the, for the UK. And, um, this was this was when Neil Armstrong kind of opened up the capsule, steps down the ladder, makes his way outside, and Buzz Aldrin follows him uh, about twenty minutes later, and just fascinating. I mean, the footage is standalone. You don't need us to commentate on no, over it and tell no. you how, uh, how... There's
1: nothing we can say. Moving <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, go and seek it out.
2: But I think actually, um, if we come to sort of the timeline idea, well, you know what the, um, Neil Armstrong did? Seven minutes into his... Um, you know, embarkment onto the surface of the moon.
1: Um, I don't know. It took a leak? What? This I...
2: is quite telling. Yeah. You know? He collected the very first sample of moon rocks. Ah, that's much better than my answer. Yeah. 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 Seven minutes it took. Wow. And th- The reason why is because it was so important to get a scientific return from this mission that he picked up a sample, put it in a little pouch, put it in the side of his spacesuit because if any everything goes wrong and mm-hmm. they have to evacuate, you know, get out of there quick.
1: Yeah. we uh, got to go now. Now. Yeah. At least he's
2: got one sample that they can return. Which makes sense.
1: And I think it's something that perhaps a lot of people don't appreciate is, yes, exploration. Yes, let's go and set human beings on on the moon. And if you look at something like the International Space Station and, you know, a lot of modern uh, space exploration and space flight, it's all got a scientific basis to it. I mean, the astronauts on the International Space Station spend a large proportion of their time doing experiments. That's what they do. They're not sitting there at the steering wheel of the ISS going, which way should we go? That's all taken care of. They have to do maintenance. They have to get out and fix things. But when they're not doing that, they're not sitting around playing cards. They're doing science, which is awesome. And the same thing happened on the moon. Well, let's start taking some samples. Let's do some things uh, because we may have to get out of here any minute now.
2: Yeah, yeah. So it just tells you the importance that the scientific... You know um, discovery had as part of this whole mission as well
1: yeah and they're collecting samples from the moon because as we've discussed on this podcast like that has a lot that it can tell us and huge for the first amounts. time we're able to actually bring it home
2: huge amounts yeah and they actually so the whole um, moonwalk Lasted two and a quarter hours, and in that time, the two astronauts managed to collect twenty one point five kilograms of moon sample. That's quite a lot. That's a lot, and you know different types. They got some of the dust, they got some of the small rocks. They moved around, and there's lovely maps you can see of all the different sample collection points. They were very meticulous in mapping, you know, where exactly every single sample came from. And
1: And that again shows you how how importantly this was taken how important that part of the mission was because if you think about how everything else must have been optimized like we we can't take up more than we than we can carry and every every kilogram takes that much more fuel to get off the ground in order to get into space so everything else is being really really tightly constrained you know there's there's no extraneous stuff here but we need to be able to bring back not just small vials with powder in them. We need to bring back like 20 plus kilos of moon stuff. So we've got to make the space for that. That's a high priority part of this mission.
2: Definitely, definitely. Yeah, so it was was a lovely mission. I mean they, they achieved all their, their goals. They set up a lot of scientific instruments as well that some of which are still in use today, like the laser rangefinders that we use to bounce light back and forth. Yeah, they're basically like the mirrors
1: sitting on the surface, aren't they? Yeah. And you yeah. can you can fire a laser at the moon and it'll bounce off one of these things. Because by the time the laser beam gets to the moon, it's very large. Yes, you know, it might yeah. start off as very small, but it's very large by the time it gets over that distance. And so a bit of that hits a mirror on the moon, which then bounces back to us. And you can measure that that distance really, really accurately.
2: So we can measure that very, very precisely, the distance between Earth and the moon. But yeah, so um, they went back, they had a bit of a snooze on the moon, first nap on the moon.
1: Yeah, which I think it makes sense to do that after you've been out for the walk. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, if I go out for a walk, I need a snooze and I'm not walking on the moon. You know, i, I not surprised is what I'm saying.
2: And after 21 and a half hours of being on the surface, they lifted off again and rejoined the um, command module. 24th of July was when we had the successful re-entry and return to
1: Earth. What do you think Michael Collins was doing for 21 hours?
2: Oh, he had a lot of tasks to be going on with. They had other instruments on the command module that were making other measurements he had to look after. He had to make sure that the rendezvous was all set up. So, so... he wasn't just swiddling his oh, thumbs no, going, had...
1: I wish I was down there.
2: No, it's very interesting. You see some interviews with Michael Collins. He's, he's not, you know, just no, I a mean, grudge about I'm it. I'm being right?
1: facetious. And actually, I can you know, I can imagine that kind of comment must really uh, get un- – it wouldn't get under someone's skin because they're used to it over, over such a period of time. I guess the point is people doing these missions are so utterly prepared for their role in that mission. Maybe there is some underlying, yeah, it would have been nice to walk on the moon, but I am absolutely key to this. And I'm not even going to question my role.
2: Wow. I mean, just to be even a tiny part of that mission must have felt amazing. Just amazing. Yeah. So that's and we had the whole Apollo program. As you said, Apollo 11 was just one in a sequence of those. Um, In total, we went to the moon six times Mm -hmm. for um, manned missions. Ten people walked on the surface of the moon. Between 69 and 72.
1: Because there was it went up to Apollo 17 was the last one. So that's 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, which should have been seven, but 13 didn't get on the moon. No. They got to the moon, they went around the moon, and then they came back as quickly as they possibly could because it all went horribly wrong. See the film.
2: Yeah, so in those missions, uh, we brought back 382 kilograms in total.
1: That's a lot of moon.
2: That's a lot of moon.
1: Yeah. They'd still be working through that.
2: Oh, yeah. So that's broken down into 2,200-ish uh, samples. And I saw a stat there that um, about 400 of those uh, NASA loan out every year for teaching or research purposes. I mean, as a researcher, you can still request Apollo moon rocks to do some of your um, research on. Because that's, so cool. that's still pretty much all we have is pure moon samples. Right? Yeah.
1: Well, we haven't been back.
2: Since have we we must have been we back. haven't had a sample returned. No, since, since then. That, I'm sorry, yeah.
1: that's what I meant. We haven't sort of gone and collected stuff since. I was just trying to think have Have there been landers on the moon since then? I can't remember.
2: Uh, the most famous. Well, there's been yeah, there's a Chinese one that landed um, just a, about a year ago. Yeah, very from, recently. But yeah.
1: but you know, Apollo seventeen was what early seventies. Yeah, definitely. Diff- yeah. And so that's a long time. That's you know forty plus years 45 almost 50 years since we left the moon for the last time and haven't been back
2: so a lot of people ask why haven't we been back
1: that's a really good question why
2: not i think there's a few answers to that question i think the first one is it's freaking dangerous yeah
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's expensive it's dangerous did we mention it's dangerous and really hard to do it's and a long way we
2: away. We'd have very bare minimum technology to even be able to do it. I mean, yeah. the fact we did it with the technology we had is mm. just, you, you, as a historian, you know, 200 years in the future, you'd look back and you'd just say, you yeah, know, you just made that up, surely. You, yes. you, you couldn't have gone to the moon <laughs> you, with that stuff. You
1: could have waited a couple of years and, and basically done it all with your iPhone, couldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, the computing power that were on these things alone, you're nuts to even try this. It's like trying to go in a boat It's just ridiculous. But they did. They did. Because that was the goal. Yeah, we had a
2: different sort of cultural sentiment about explorers and... Um, how much a human life is worth risking. And in, that, in the 60s and 70s, that was kind of okay. That was mm. an okay level of risk. Mm. And I doubt that that level of risk would ever be repeated today.
1: No, it's a, it's an interesting question, isn't it? It'll be really interesting to see what happens with this next generation of space flight, trips to the moon, Lots of people are doing it from NASA and the, the Euro- European Space Agency through to the private companies of, of Blue Origin and Virgin and SpaceX, Elon Musk's pet project. Um, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how that's managed. But also, the, like the fact that we haven't been back to the moon as humans, we haven't set foot back on the moon again in many decades... But we've sent a lot of stuff to Mars. We've sent space missions to Mars. We put little buggies down on Mars, driving them around and so on. But we haven't done that to the moon. It's almost like from an exploration point of view, we went, okay, well, we've done that. We'll leave that now. Let's set our sights further. Not in sending humans, not yet. That's a much harder problem. But let's send stuff to Mars and let's Let's do that. Let's tick that one off. And that seemed to take over.
2: Yeah, well, definitely. We focused on other scientific projects, basically. So for solar system exploration, definitely Mars became the big thing but also in terms of human space flight the international space station took over so preparing developing building that and to this day astronauts are up there all the time Mm. uh, performing as you say experiments and they go up there for significant periods of time and you think the moon and a landing in 1969 was eight days Mm. of astronaut space flight time no one had really any clue what eight days would do long term to a human. Now we send up people for months and months and we have very good data from the International Space Station of what long haul space flight would do to a human body. So even
1: though the space station is, I mean, it's, it's pretty close to the Earth. It's not very far away. It's just up there. You know, you could almost touch it in comparison to how far away the moon is. There's an enormous amount of really important stuff that we've got to figure out, as you say, about, about the long-term impact of, of just being in space. But also, how do we do long-term space missions? You know, what do you do about when things go wrong? If if something's going to the moon and back, that's a very different prospect to, yeah, but we've got to have this spacecraft in orbit for years, years and years. And if stuff goes wrong, what do we do? and if you think about that longer term eventually if we've got you know missions that that end up setting up a a, uh, a space station around the moon or even uh, you know something on the moon that can be a permanently manned base and then further if you're going to mars you know at the moment we can send something up to the iss to replenish its its supplies and to if something's broken we can send up a new one we can't do that nearly as easily if something's around the moon or on the moon, and we certainly won't be able to do it if something's on its way to Mars. So we've got to figure out now how do you make sure that stuff on the International Space Station can be run independent of us down on the ground for longer and longer periods of time without sending up, you know, a rescue plan. Yeah. And that's, that's really hard stuff. That's much harder than anything we've done before
2: definitely and i think that's why we're now returning back to the moon so we sort of we did our apollo missions we got the fantastic scientific samples that we were you know 400 kilos of stuff what seemed to be kind of pretty a good amount that was enough to to do the research we needed for the time and we didn't have a very compelling argument to send people back there now we're entering an era where spaceflight is developing to this next generation of stuff right and we're thinking about, well, should we be setting up moon bases, stepping stones to getting out there into the solar system to do this more extensive space travel? And it's only, that's why now it's coming back to the forefront of, well, if we can develop the technology to sort out putting people on the moon, building structures on the moon, Um, then maybe that can sort of spur us on and will perhaps um, be a um, jumping-off point, if you like, for getting into deeper space.
1: Yeah, and it is interesting that it's all happening now, and it it really does make me wonder about the convergence of, of modern technology. You know, computing power has become so ludicrously easy. You know, we carry around in our pockets these amazing computers. Wear them on our wrists now, for goodness sake things which are far, far more powerful than what got us to the moon in the first place. But that's really only kicked in in the last decade at most. Um, And it's over the last decade that these more ambitious space plans have started to become developed. And it's the merging of those technologies of, well, okay, maybe we're ready. You know, we've been doing lots of stuff on the International Space Station. That means that we're getting more confident about doing those kinds of longer-term missions, and now the technology, we can build stuff, we can program stuff, we can do this. Let's do that next phase of humans in space and expanding our horizons. It's pretty exciting.
2: It's very, very cool.
1: So from a scientific point of view then, going back to the, back to the moon, is that, what do we think? Is that going to be more about Trying to build up the, the capacity to get further out into the
0: into part the of cosmos. It, part
2: of it, I think there 's th- more things we can learn about the moon as well. I mean, if we come back to the original question of kind of the so what what was the you know what was the outcome of landing on the moon of course, huge cultural impacts um, and we 'll talk a bit about some of the scientific cultural impacts that that had, but uh, I also found um, if you go back and sort of review the Apollo program. Uh they, the Smithsonian Museum actually did a really, really nice kind of top ten things that we learned from this program. Top Good. ten scientific um results. So we can if we start from there, then we can kind of build up well where do we cool. go from there. Okay. So if we go should we have a top ten countdown? Let's do it. Yep. All, right. All right. Coming in at number ten. Coming in at number ten. Um well I've gotten four, Are these in order? Well, I've gotten one to ten.
1: Oh. Okay. Can we
2: do a number one first? All right.
1: <laughs> but are they in order? Are they in order of? No,
2: they're in no particular order. Okay, so in no
1: particular order ten, then. ten
2: amazing things that we learned scientifically about from the moon, cool. from the Apollo missions. All right.
1: um, Starting at number one then.
2: First one, the moon is not primordial. Right. So what that means is that it's not just a little lump of rock that was kicking around at the very, very beginning of the formation of our solar system and that the Earth sort of captured along the way and then we merrily continue to evolve together.
1: See past episode of syzygy crazy donut moon theory.
2: Yeah, episode number 37. So we're going to refer back to that one a lot because a lot of these relate to the data that eventually led to that theory. Yeah. Right. So And we, that's a big finding because big. you really know something big.
1: as prominent in the night sky as the moon, you will assume as we have for the vast majority of our civilization that it has been there forever and will be forever and is unchanging and is anything from a god to the same stuff as us. And mm-hmm. So finding out the origin story of the moon is a big deal.
2: Definitely, definitely. So it's not it's not primordial. It was a really big discovery. Yep. Um, second of all, the moon is really ancient. And it contains a history of the solar system that we don't necessarily get from the other terrestrial planets.
1: Interesting idea that you can only really learn about the past history of the solar system. You you can't learn about that directly. It's only indirectly. It's only by gathering samples and circumstantial evidence to put together and go, it all adds up. It must have been this way. You can't watch it.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so we we could go and look at geological records on um, particularly Venus, Earth, and Mars, but we have other weathering processes. We've got volcanism. We've got all these things which are continually changing the surface of these um, planets. That mean that things like cratering history, which tells you about periods where there might have been lots of impacts, for example, they're just gone yeah. from our from yeah. our surface. And so having the moon there, which has kind of been – very static and stable in its uh, surface history over time. Has, yeah, the moon's really colored really in craters,
1: particularly when you see pictures of the, the far side of the moon. Where and am I right in thinking that, that like when you do see pictures of the far side of the moon, it, it's incredibly more pockmarked with craters than the side that we can see, yeah, which has got lots of craters on it. Is yeah. that because the Earth's basically shadowing it?
2: In a way? We're not entirely sure all the reasons why that is. Um, Partially, yeah, because things have been flying in and hitting it. But um, there's also quite a lot of complex geology of the moon that we don't really understand the difference between the the near side and the far side. The oceans, for example, the mara, are not present on the far side of the moon. So, yeah. So, interesting stuff there. Yeah, lots lots of stuff. Okay, so that's number two. Is that number two? Number three. Number three. um, Interestingly, this is also a leading in factor for our... um, where the moon came from, the youngest moon rocks are about the same age as the oldest earth rocks.
1: Youngest moon rocks, about the same age as the oldest earth rocks, which means, hang on, I haven't had enough coffee to put that one together.
2: So it means that, well, the earth has continued to evolve and generate rocks, basically, through geological processes, whereas there was this point in time where moon rocks and earth rocks were the same age and the moon didn't get any new rocks it's stopped yeah. its
1: stopped I mean uh, aside from things which have bashed into it, the point is that the earth is continually um, you know bringing up new material from inside through you know volcanism and, and plates coming together and subduction or whatever those are called and it's constantly making new stuff the surface is is changing and growing and and bringing up new stuff from within uh, but the moon's not doing that
2: yeah the moon's really old really old. After just saying that the moon's not primordial, it's yeah. like, but it's still quite old. <laughs> so um, number four, mm-hmm. it's moons made out of the same stuff as the Earth. Yes. Not at all obvious that it should have no. been, right? There's no reason really why we thought it was. To be, most of um, scientific history, we presumed that the moon was captured from somewhere else. Yeah. The solar yeah.
1: I mean, if you if you allow for the possibility that the moon and the Earth haven't been around forever and were created at the same time, if they were created at all, then all sorts of theories, and where did it come from? So the fact that they are made of the same stuff is really important. See Crazy Moon Theory, episode 37.
2: Yep, yep. Number five, mm-hmm. again, not obvious, but, well, it feels like obvious to us now, but it wasn't at the time, the moon is lifeless.
1: Yes, yeah. It was. So it was always possible that... I mean, we could look at the moon. It's obviously not covered in trees and, and dolphins and things. But it's possible that there could have been stuff down in the soil. Yeah, microbes, like, yeah. bacteria, yeah. And
2: whatever. Nothing. No, nothing. Nothing. Hmm. Absolutely Which is nothing. interesting,
1: slightly disappointing, but interesting.
2: Yeah, it does. It even is um, deficient in organic material, so mm. there's kind of very little chance that anything could develop on the moon.
1: That so kind of underlines that one, really, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. Okay, let's look elsewhere.
2: All right, number six. Um, The moon rocks uh, have been under processes of very, very high temperature, so that means they've kind of melted at Mm -hmm. some point in the past, Um, and that's pretty much their only formation mechanism, melted stuff. On Earth, you have rocks that are formed from, say, water processes, mm-hmm. like sedimentary rocks, where you just sort of use water to put layers and layers of um, particulate matter together.
1: Yeah, and then and squash it down underneath very heavy oceans, and eventually over time you get these sedimentary rocks. But that doesn't happen on the moon. No, nope, no sedimentary rocks on the moon. no oceans.
2: Yeah, no water, that. So, and no historic water, therefore. Uh, right, number seven, kind of related. Uh, used to have a magma ocean.
1: A magma ocean, so it didn't have water oceans, but it had a magma, magma ocean. ocean. So it
2: was mm. very, very hot and molten in the past. Uh, number eight is kind of uh, an extension of this as well, where the mare. These are the the black spots, the dark oceans you can see on the surface of the moon. These are giant impact craters that were once filled with lava.
1: Oh, okay. So the the when you look at the at a full moon on a, on a nice clear light clear at night, you can see. You know the the face in the moon and the, those huge structures, the darker parts. You're saying, well, and those are colloquially known as as oceans, uh, or seas.
2: Yeah, seas. Yeah, so seas. they have names like the Sea of Tranquility. Yeah, sea, right. You know.
1: And um, and you're saying that those were a massive impact sites. From from what?
2: From huge uh, meteor impacts. So they basically dug up very, very deep material made of huge molten lake, in some cases maybe several fractions, large fractions of the surface of the moon. And then they solidified and cooled and became this sort of smooth-ish oceans.
1: And is this sort of back in the early stages of of formation when we've talked about in episode 37, that, uh, that the inner solar system was a much more violent and scary place? Or are we talking more recent than that?
2: A bit of both. So sort of, it's, um, it's still very, they're still very old, but um, they happened much, much later than the formation of the moon. And you can see that in that there's fewer craters in these oceans than there are in kind of the general bright moon surface. So these
1: big features haven't been all messed up by lots of smaller impact yet. So it can't have been too long ago. Okay, so number nine.
2: So this is interesting um, and not something we fully understand yet, but this is probably the fault of the Earth. Mm-hmm. The moon has non-uniform density. Okay. So what that means is um, – so the Earth, right? If you measure – if you go right to the middle of the Earth and have a ruler that goes out to the surface, at each concentric ring that you step out towards the surface, you basically have uniform density around okay. that, so that ring. Okay,
1: so that sort of spherical um, ball, that spherical um, shell – inside the earth, it would be pretty much uniform all the way around that.
2: Yeah. We're basically onion shaped. Yeah. Lots of layers. Good description.
1: So each each layer of the onion is the same all the way around, pretty yeah. much. But the moon's not like that. The
2: moon's not like that. It has these really non uniform clumps where it's over dense. And these are particularly prevalent on the side of the moon that faces the Earth.
1: Oh, why would that be?
2: It's probably something to do with the gravitational interactions between the moon and the Earth. Maybe there were large chunks of the moon that got liquefied and redistributed themselves. But we're not re- it's Most of it's very subsurface, so it's really deep inside the moon.
1: Right. Could it have something to do with the fact that because the moon's so. So much smaller that it cooled faster, and there wasn't there wasn't time for it to sort of slosh around and distribute everything well, around. Yeah, or... maybe. I
2: mean, the, the impact of the Earth's gravity on the Moon is huge, yeah. right? Yeah. We're we you know six times bigger than the yeah. Moon. So, and you
1: think about how much impact the Moon has on the Earth on our both liquid and solid tides. Um, that the impact must be so much greater the other way around that pulling around entire parts of the structure of the moon isn't so unthinkable.
2: Yeah, so that's really interesting, Mm. these mass concentrations. And number 10, 10? which is actually slightly different in that it doesn't really involve the moon and the Earth at all, but the uh, moon itself provides a fantastic record of the sun's history. How so? So it preserves the radiation... History of the sun So periods where the sun became quite a bit more Violent and had higher incidence Of UV radiation, this is Captured in the material that's On the surface of the moon So different parts, different rocks if you like On the moon that are different ages Will show different radiation um, ev- well, Effects From the sun Wow,
1: so the moon's a little bit like A, a sort of Astronomical equivalent of an ice core you know, you drill down into the ice in Antarctica and you can see all the layers that the ice has been laid down. You can see what the atmosphere was like at that time. And you've got a good climate history down through the ice core. These is kind of similar, that the, the rocks of different ages on the surface of the moon are carrying this history of what their atmosphere was like, which was basically the radiation coming from the sun. That's cool. Yeah, Hadn't it's heard really that nice.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, So I mean, all those things together, I mean, they may sound kind of... Some of them might sound quite esoteric science, right? You know, whether whether the moon has a blobby mass inside of it or not, that doesn't really sound like it's going to be hugely impactful. But we've got to put all this together in terms of not only the uh, history of where the moon came from, how we can understand that, but also the understanding of how our whole solar system came about, huge impacts for planetary science and evolution. And then we're now using that information to understand how other solar systems, other planets around other stars, I mean, the only local data we have is the around us. So we can ask questions like, well, you know, did that star system over there evolve in the same way? Therefore, are conditions going to be suitable for life on on an exoplanet?
1: It's, you've got to think about it that way, don't you? That. On the one hand, like why why bother going and studying the moon? Like how much can you possibly learn? But it's the only experiment that we can do to actually go and get stuff from a moon around a planet like ours. Going and checking out Mars is the only thing we can do to actually go to a planet like Mars. <laughs> it's the it's, just, it's the only one we've got. That's the only experiment we can do. And so that's the only way that we can get that information that will inform our understanding of of our planet and of the solar system, but of planets and solar systems generally. It's all we've got. In which case, yeah, we've got to go and study the moon some more.
2: <laughs> so I think the overall scientific value of those missions is huge. Yeah. Huge. And it's, we're still using that very early data to to you know, in the exoplanet era that we're in now to, to understand these other worlds. Now, you could,
1: if, if one were being sort of devil's advocate on all of this. You could say, all right, but it is an extraordinary amount of money and effort and time put into what are still reasonably esoteric questions about the origins of planets and solar systems and so on. Like, you know, you care about that. You're an astronomer. You're a space nut. You're a, you know, space flight aficionado. You care about that. But Why why does the rest of humanity care about that? It's an enormous investment to go to the moon, to collect stuff and, and bring it back again. And you can kind of understand the sort of criticisms that come up about NASA and space flight generally, space exploration generally, which is why are we spending this money doing these things when there's so much to be done down here on Earth? And I think it is an important question given the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of, of stepping foot on the moon, which was a very expensive thing to do. It was a very expensive footprint. Um, and then the gearing up for this next era of space exploration. You know, it's, it's worth considering. So, I don't know, Emily, what do you reckon?
2: Well, I think that the way that science and culture have interacted since the moon landings has completely changed. It's changed our lives forever. Because if you think about... How, what science was like in the 60s. Um, I mean, of course, scientific endeavor was around, it was you know, great people doing great things, but the moon landing was the first huge investment of money on this scale, right? This is big science, this seems like everyday stuff to us now, yeah. right? We in- invest billions and billions of pounds and dollars into big science today, but I think. The Apollo missions were probably the very first time that we'd actually done that. I
1: mean, the only other one that I can think of that was earlier, and there were probably others. Please feel free to contact us and let us know. The only one I can think of immediately is the Manhattan Project. And, okay, that's a whole other moral and ethical minefield. But that was a huge bunch of people getting together, spending an enormous amount of money to do something technological, which yeah did have a lot of spin-offs from it, but it was also about something not nearly as inspiring, which was creating bombs to blow up a lot of people. So let's park that one for another <laughs> discussion another time. I think I think you're right. And the 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 impetus behind this huge goal of getting to the moon and and stepping on it accelerated a huge amount of of industry and effort and discovery in order to make it possible. What's interesting is then what happened, what came out of that. You yeah. know, it, it changed the way that we operate as a society from a science and technological point of view. But it also gave a lot back,
2: definitely. And uh, I think you you were talking about to, today the um what's it return on investment return that's on been investment. estimated yeah. for the um, Apollo missions. Yeah,
1: I tried I tried to find some concrete figures on this, and I'll I'll keep looking. If I do dig up you know whatever I find, I'll put in the show notes. But you do see numbers thrown around of something like a ten to one return on investment, which means yeah, okay, putting a foot on the moon. Was very very expensive, but for every dollar that was put into space exploration, ten dollars came back long term in terms of the technological advances that were used in other areas, in terms of the increases or the the, the increasing ability to uh, to engineer systems, in terms of the computational advances that we made and the mathematical advances that we made. Just the sheer return of investment on the science and technology, and that's actual material investment into the world's economy, is huge. It's an investment. It worked. It didn't cost money. It made money, which sounds like a strange argument to make. But you see that occurring over and over again in science and technology. Another really good example, which I think we, we mentioned earlier, is the Human Genome Project, where you know, you're mapping out the, the human genome. It took billions of dollars. But the return on that from medical science and technology, as well as impact on other fields that have got nothing to do with the human genome, it's just using the ideas, is enormous. And so you can't downplay the benefits to society at large from these what seem like esoteric projects because they're an accelerator to our ability to do stuff at all. It's big stuff.
2: It is. And I think what's um, maybe undervalued I th- sometimes is the way that people reacted to this science. So you said, you mentioned like the Manhattan Project was similar in some ways in the terms of that. We put a huge amount of money into this thing. We got a great technological development, but it was a little bit, eh, Yeah. The, the sure. ethics
1: of, was it worth it? <sighs> it's a tough one.
2: The, the Apollo program, putting people on the moon is completely different because the public were inspired they got behind this idea science became part of everyday conversations that people were having and that reaction from the public was really really important because it told us that science is good science can do good things and it's it's worth investing in if you hadn't had that public reaction if people would been like well yeah whatever yeah then a huge amount of stuff would never have followed on from that, because ultimately this has been done with the money from taxpayers. Yeah, right. Yeah. this is where NASA comes from. This is where um, most science money comes from. It's everybody it's in the your world money, funds folks. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And to have the public turn around and say, "Yeah, that's cool. We like this. It's okay to do science for curiosity. It's okay to do science for you know, courageously to be bold and do big projects." Yeah. And then
1: with the with the other side of that coin being, and by the way, that return on investment across all of science and technology, which will influence all aspects of society, from medicine through to engineering, through to like any field you can you can name, is enormous, absolutely enormous. So that's that's icing on an already attractive societal cake. There, yeah. But it's yeah.
2: But then you ask, you know, what if the human genome project happened? What if CERN happened? If the reaction had not been so positive or even if it hadn't been unsuccessful?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think it's worth, it's really worth considering the value of human exploration, human curiosity, human endeavor in just trying to explore and understand the world for its own sake, without any any specific criteria around that. We just want to go and we want to understand and we want to know is worthwhile in itself with the understanding that it always, always has a return. It doesn't mean you don't treat that carefully. It's important to, to you know have all of those moral and ethical, ethical questions around it. But just know that, that that human trait of exploration and desire to know is itself inherently worthwhile mm. in our species.
2: Mm. And I would say it's probably brought us all closer as well. So when we saw those um, images from the early Apollo flights as well as Apollo 11 of the Earth fitting the whole planet into a single camera image. Yeah,
1: and a really fuzzy one at that. Yeah. Really bad. Like you yeah. look at that original like- footage and it's that's not good television. But it was. I mean, everyone who could was watching that.
2: Yeah, you, you took a photo of every human being. Every human who has ever existed on Earth was is in that photograph, Mm. apart from three who were
1: Yeah. Apart from the three who were there behind the camera, as it were.
2: Amazing. And and I think that that sank in. And NASA knew a little bit about the the, the human impact of this. I mean, then they designed the logo, for example. They designed it intentionally with an olive branch, right? This was not Yeah, it was hugely politically charged and there was that context but in some ways they were also making this kind of peace offering Mm. about it as well and saying yes it is america yes this is what we've done We're we are amazing but on the other hand actually this is humanity yeah we
1: understand the gravity of what we're doing pun intended um this is yeah this is species changing stuff that we're doing here and we need to treat that with care
2: Yeah. And from that point, really, only these big scientific endeavors were only possible with international collaboration. So post the ending of the Cold War and so on, then, you know, scientific unity across the globe. I mean, I look at where my colleagues come from. They're hugely international. They come from every continent. Um, I work with people from hundreds of countries and that's normal Mm. now.
1: And the next phase of space, of space exploration, will have inherently built into it international collaboration, because it's the only way. I don't think it would be possible for any individual state to be able to do the kind of ambitious work required to get us back to the moon and stay there and to move beyond that. It's got to be international, and that in itself is, that's a pretty inspiring thing, given the state of the world at the moment which can seem a bit gloomy at times is okay but there's there's hope there's yeah. good stuff coming. I mean
2: this is a real opportunity for scientists to build those cultural bridges yeah. that um in other ways that we're trying to build up put up walls with each other but the scientists are saying well actually no we we can't we can't do this without collaboration and working together.
1: There you go everybody look to the scientists. So you know on that topic then of Moving out, going back to the moon—you know, we've we've established, I think, beyond beyond any shadow of a doubt, that going to the moon was a good thing, and now seems like everyone's gearing up to go back. So, what is coming up? What is next?
2: Well, I think we need to think about some questions that are, I think they are quite interesting questions. Now, mm-hmm. let's say, okay, we we landed people on the moon in 1969. What would be the next kind of follow-on from that? Putting sure. putting people on Mars, maybe. Right? Yeah,
1: that's and that's a big step. That's hard.
2: Yeah, it's a huge, huge, I mean, the orders of magnitude of difficulty here. Don't
1: underestimate how hard that is. Yeah.
2: Um, But my question that I sometimes think about is would putting people on Mars have the same kind of impact as putting people on the moon did in the 60s?
1: When that first person, assuming it happens, when that first person steps out of the lander onto the soil of Mars, will everyone be gathered around their devices it won't be televisions, will it? We'll be watching on phones and and watches, and probably you our know smart. glasses, our smart glasses at yeah, that point, exactly. our head up or yeah. the, the contact lenses with the the stuff built into it. But will everyone be watching that, or will it be a little bit sort of uh, you know whatever?
2: Yeah, will it have the same kind of momentous impact? I mean, of course it's going to be a big deal. It'll be huge.
1: I kind of feel like it will. I don't know. I I I'm going to go down on the side of. I think it'll have a really big impact. And I will add to that, I think it's going to depend a little bit on who it is.
2: Hmm.
1: I I think that if if there's a clear, this is an international effort and we're sending humanity to Mars as opposed to it's an American or it's someone from China or whatever it is. If it's clearly, this is humankind going to Mars. I th- I think that could capture everyone. But you don't Maybe. look so convinced. No, I'm not
2: so convinced. I mean, I don't want to downplay how amazing that would be. But I don't know if it would be on the level of moon mm. landing.
1: Yeah, it's hard to oh, gauge amazing, that. Yeah. It's hard to gauge that.
2: And one of the reasons why I sort of wonder about that is this um, trend that we have, particularly in the last sort of five to ten years, of the anthropomorphic... I can't even say the word now. Anthropomorphication. Anthropomorphication when we anthropomorphize <laughs> <laughs>
1: let's work on this word anthropomorphize and Anth-
2: when we make robots yeah have their own personalities and human traits
1: please don't write to us and tell us how to pronounce that <laughs> word. we know how to pronounce the word we're just not doing it
2: yeah so let's think of like curiosity for example mm-hmm. right curiosity is mars's um kind of premier rover explorer or you know when we had um opportunity yeah and opportunity died and how much people got really human upset. emotion there was. I got
1: upset Chargers. and it's because it's not it's not a machine it's it's a droid it's like watching r2d2 or c3po die like that's tragic
2: but these are deliberate ways that we've made human interaction with these robots because yeah, see they what ha- you mean. they have their Twitter accounts they have yeah. their tw- so you're know, kind of saying that, that
1: putting a human on Mars is not redundant but it's it's not like we haven't already been there.
2: We've already had an mean? emotional investment yeah. in things that are on Mars. Maybe you're right.
1: Maybe you're right. Maybe the humans going there is just the next bit. And it's like, oh, yeah, cool. Humans on Mars. Okay. Are they going to go and find the robot? Yeah, you know. yeah. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> <dusted> <laughs> they off see if will get it going. Sing again? happy birthday to Hey, they got opportunity <laughs> going again. Yay, opportunity. Sorry, there's a human being <laughs> on Mars. Yeah, 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 yeah. It doesn't matter. Opportunity's working again. Fantastic. I hadn't thought about this. An interesting idea. Do we can, Would we end up caring more about the robots than the people?
0: Yeah.
2: It's, it's, it's just very really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. But, I mean, it's always worth, I mean, it is something we are working towards. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. Um, the scientific outcomes of those are maybe not quite as significant as they would have been um, for the moon landing. But that's yeah. because you get the biggest revolution in science from just the first things, right? Yes. Right. So we've, but we've already had the first things on Mars.
1: And, and arguably, I mean, getting back to your previous point, sending rovers and satellites and landers is a much more efficient way of getting the science, getting the data, getting the samples than sending human beings, which is really hard and expensive. And they're lumps of meat that you've got to keep alive. That's much harder than keeping a rover going. And if the rover dies, it's easier to send another one up to mm-hmm. replace it with better instruments the human beings are the hard part why would you do that if you had a choice
2: yeah maybe you're right yeah yeah it's interesting i mean there will be some types of science that we can only do with humans mm. i mean there's we despite all the things that get uh, splashed across the press we're not going to be replaced by robots no we no. think and act in, in different ways not always Useful ones, but mm. you know we have our own wiring that you can't replicate in an artificial intelligence system. Yeah. Um, so there is an element of there will always be human input into science. Yeah. Because it is it needs that creativity that but level it, of thinking.
1: It does take on this instra- but, interesting aspect of what is the role of the humans? You know, with the landing on the moon, the the people were the thing. You know, we're sending people to the moon, and that's the whole point. Going to Mars well, we've got plenty of things that can do all the all the science and a lot of the exploration for us. So the point of sending people to Mars would be to send people to Mars. And that's a very different proposition. Mm-hmm. We're no longer central to the entire Mars mission. We're now just a part of it. And, yeah, that's interesting.
2: However, there are some things to look forward to mm-hmm. uh, if you can't wait for the human exploration of Mars. Okay, what have we got to look forward away, to? What's yeah. coming up? So, well, this year, I mean, this is a big year for the moon. Uh, we've already had a few landers um, on the moon, a few attempts, not yep. all of them successful. No, but no. That's... But,
1: you know, you've got to crash a few landers in order to get on the moon or something. Whatever the phrase is. <laughs> yeah, that's the new phrase. You've got to break some eggs to make an omelette. got to crash a lander to get to the moon.
2: Yeah. So in Q3, quarter three this year, so in the next few months, uh, hopefully, we're going to see um, India is going has a lovely mission. ISRO mm-hmm. has a lander and a rover that are going to be appearing on the surface of the moon. The USA has a private company called Moon Express. Right? Um, which is happening sometime in the s- Don't think I've heard
1: of them. No, you, you always hear about the SpaceX and the and the what's the Amazon one? Mr Mr Mr, Mr. Amazon, he's got what is it Blue Origin or Origin? Blue or blue? blue. Yeah,
2: that one. Blue, whoever they are. Yep.
1: yep. Those guys. You hear about them? And Virgin, trying to get tourists into space, but I hadn't heard of this Specifically
2: for the moon. So right. they're, they're, it's a private lander, but it's going to carry an international science instrument called the International Lunar Observatory. Cool. So that's quite cool. Yeah. One to, to look out for. That's also going to be in quarter four, so towards the end of this year. Uh, China mm-hmm. have another one going up. So they've got a couple of um, really successful missions to the moon now, which is really great.
1: Yeah, they sent one to the
2: Poles, didn't they? Yeah. Didn't they? Um, but no, they have, they have a um, rover. Mm-hmm. Um already. And so there's gonna be a sample return mission and that's hopefully gonna land in December. So very, very exciting. Oh, it's first all sample. happening this year. Yeah, first sample return for fifty years, right? Well nearly fifty years.
1: 'Cause the um the Israeli space uh space organization set one up not that long ago, which crashed, unfortunately. But again, you know, you've got to try and they will be back. Yeah,
2: they've got another one in development, so yeah. that's gonna be a couple of years. But yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. I mean you think these these this is a really mixed, you know Yeah. Bag of uh, companies and countries um, involved in this, um, a big one that uh, you might want to look out for is um, a NASA, ESA, and other international um, partners collaboration, which is going to happen in 2020. Is they're going to start looking at the first test flights for the Orion um, missions. Yeah. So these are kind of the next step for human spaceflight for NASA. But they're also um, collaborating with others so that they can put up a whole lot of CubeSats mm. around the moon, which is really, really cool.
1: CubeSats, are the, uh, they're really small, aren't they? They're Ten very centimetre very, boxes, yeah, basically. Yeah, tiny little boxes. Um, and you can take up a whole bunch of them at once. And each one can sort of contain a little experiment or a little device. Um, and... They're not particularly expensive because you can send up a bunch of them at once.
2: Yeah, the International Space Station has a little purpose-built CubeSat launcher. So it's a little like firing one that just fires them out. Boom, 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 boom. It's really cute. Very cool. Um, But yeah, so they want to do some 15 or so CubeSats to go with that one. And then if we're talking about crewed flights, I mean, this is not hugely far away. Mm. We're talking about maybe uh, 2022, For a crewed Orion spacecraft to be going uh, on an orbit around the moon. And 2023 for uh, perhaps a um, private company to be doing the same thing. So SpaceX has their um, hashtag Dear Moon project. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a lunar tourism. I mean, so maybe a year after the astronauts go around then that's, we'll have
1: some tourists that's nuts isn't it i mean very rich tourists oh yes you know this is not you and me
2: no this is not going to be ryanair uh flying to you know not some unless lovely... we get some
1: not unless we get some big sponsors for, <laughs> for syzygy anytime soon mm. i don't think we're going to be going yeah,
2: no i don't think so but tourists nonetheless
1: i mean the only people who have been into space so far have been people who are really trained You know, the people who have done.
2: Yeah, there's been a few sort of space tourists, but that's kind of playing with the definition of what space is. Yeah. So yeah. uh, there's no tourists been to the International Space Station. Certainly not to the example. Moon. <laughs> no. <laughs> mm. no, yeah. So you know, this is an exciting time. Mm. The anniversary will be marked with a respectful look at the past and where we've come from, but it's also such a nicely timed anniversary to be looking to the future and getting excited about the next fifty years of the moons. It
1: does. It does kind of make you make you wonder about that timing. That is. You know, we talked about how inspiring it was at the time. Is there any any influence of the fact that we're coming up to this 50th anniversary that has put a bit of, a, bit of a, a fire underneath people to go, you know what, let's do this. Let's go back. I wonder how much of an influence that's had.
2: I think it will. I think if we look back and I mean, it's cheesy, but if we say something like the whole process has been this giant leap for science and scientific endeavour just trying to imagine what that would be like in another 50 years blows my mind. It's, it's It makes me very, very excited and I hope it makes a lot of very young people very, very excited too because we're going to need them on board for the next 50 years.
1: Well, that brings us to the end of this moon landing spectacular episode of the Syzygy podcast. I look... If we're still going in another 50 years, we might be able to answer some of those questions, Emily, as to what it's like 100 years into stepping foot onto the moon. By that point, we might be broadcasting from Mars. Who knows? That could be kind of fun. Then again, we might be brains in jars at that point. So, you know, so much to look forward to. But we're going to have to find our way out of this episode. So, look, if you have been listening to this podcast and you're sitting there going yeah, look, you know, nice hour or so of chat, guys, but here's all the things that you just got wrong, or here are my feelings about space exploration, or where do I sign up to be on that next mission to Mars? Or even, I've got a couple of spare billion I want to send Chris and Emily to the moon as tourists. Look, how can they get in touch with us, Emily? It's really important.
2: So, to get in touch with us, you can tweet us. We are at SyzygyPod, S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y-P-O-D. That's correct. And I think, actually, we're SyzygyPod all over the place.
1: Pretty much anywhere out on the, the social networks if you go and search for Syzygy Pod then you can probably find us but you can also just go to syzygy.fm that's our lovely website where you can find all of the past episodes and uh, and download see, see all of the um, all of the show notes for all of those episodes and see what we've been nattering on about for the best part of 40 episodes now so go and check us out there and there is a, uh, a contact form there that you can get in touch with yes. us yep.
0: yeah, yeah.
1: too yeah. so listen if you, uh, if you want to support the show just give us a review on your podcast uh, catcher of choice go and find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever it is and just leave a review give us some stars five ideally that'd be really nice it helps us to float up through the noise and help people discover us all over the world but otherwise we'll be back again in oh, i don't know a week or so that tends to be our release schedule roughly every week with some more astronomical goodness of some kind so until then have a good week catch you in a week's time later
0: bye <laughs> 100 feet, three and a half down. Nine forward. Five percent. On any fight? Okay, 75 feet. That's looking good, down a half. Six forward. 60 seconds. Lights on. Six, down two and a half. Forward, forward. 30 feet down, two and a half. Picking up some dust. 30 feet, two and a half down. Fake shadow. Four forward. Four forward, drifting to the right a little. Down a half. 30 seconds forward, just. Okay. Contact light. Okay, engine stop. APA at a descent.